My name is Gunner. I play in a local Austin band called The Big Gun Show. And I created this podcast to sit down with other songwriters, musicians, artists, and lovers of music to talk about their top five records that have inspired their lives and musical prowess. Today's episode of the My Top Five Records podcast features Miles Zuniga. Miles is a member of Fastball. Uh, based out of my hometown of Austin, Texas, Fastball released All the Pain Money Can Buy in 1998. It reached platinum status within six months of its release. Songs The Way and Out of Our Head reached number one and number 14, respectively, on Billboard's Adult Alternative Songs. They were nominated for two Grammys for Best Rock Performance for a Duo or a Group and Best Longform Video for the song The Way. They've also received five Austin Chronicle Awards in 1998's um, Awards. Anyway, I had a blast talking with Miles. I got a chuckle. Uh, when we were talking about jazz, and he said, well, rock demands your attention, and that's very true. Uh, he's got some just killer stories to boot, and I love how he sings things and melodies during the, during the podcast. But And while you're at it, check out the podcast image here. He sure can't write songs, but he ain't so good at carving his initials into my table. Well, if you're digging on what we're laying down here, please give us a review on iTunes. You can find my top five records pretty much anywhere listen to podcasts but if you were to give a star for each one of your top five records five stars um be super appreciated um let's get the conversation but first close your eyes you're in an afterlife bunker with some weed booze and your top five records what five records do you have ladies gentlemen cats and dogs we've got miles zuniga here on the podcast today um miles how you doing bud good Awesome. So you've got your records as Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, Tom Waits, Rain Dogs, Charlie Mingus, Mingus Ah Um, Beatles, White Album, and The Clash, London Calling. Yeah. So where are you taking these records? <laughs> um, Rat, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I just thought. They'd be here till I die. Then after I die, you can't take them anywhere. There you go. That's, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking that I was imagining a world where I had to grab a few things and run, and the and the and and there was some sort of Armageddon type situation where now I'm in a bunker and the only <laughs> records I have are the five I managed to grab before. <laughs> in a bunker, you'll be. Yeah, I'll be in a bunker. I'll maybe, hopefully, have some booze and some you know weed, and I'll. Uh, and I'll have these five records. Yeah. And no, I think I'd be pretty happy. Those are pretty good things to have. Five yeah. awesome records, yes. some weed, and some booze. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. All right, let's start off with uh, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. Studio album released in 1959. It has been picked by you and Patrice Pike. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that, that's Interesting. All, another person that has, has, Interesting. has chosen it. Uh, and it was kind. Of, it was regarded uh, by many critics as his masterpiece and greatest jazz record of all time. You know, it very well may be the greatest jazz record of all time. I don't pretend to know every single jazz album. I am a fan of jazz. Uh, it's just such a beautiful record. It's it really a, is. It's so beautiful from start to finish. It. It just puts you in a trance. Uh, it's you got John Coltrane mm -hmm. on there. Uh, uh, is it? Oh man, 
Is it Bill? Uh, what's his name on the keys? Who's Bill on Evans. the keys? Bill Evans. Yeah. Is he playing keys? Yeah, on like four of the tracks. It's a pretty stellar group of people, and then, and then you've got. He was doing things differently in terms of he was having the musicians play modes and not so much song structure or keys like it was i've i don't know enough about it sadly to tell you why but it was a different approach to the way they were going to solo over the songs and stuff yep and so all of that combined but really just as a casual listener you don't need to know any of that you just put it on yeah and it's it, i mean it, i think it's one of the yeah. most influential albums of all time yeah i mean it it, it crosses all sorts of genres um, so I think you're going to nail the first quiz question. You ready for this? Okay. Okay. Um, the album was considered a landmark in what jazz vein? Was it A, modal, B, bop, or C, tonal? Whoo, that's tough. You just said it earlier. Uh, I mean, I would kind of say modal because that's what I said. Congratulations. <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed it. Nice work. Uh, so this album... Um, was added to the national in 2002 National Recording Registry, and in 2003 it was ranked number 12 on Rolling Stone's magazine of 500 greatest albums of all time. Yeah. And in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2019, Kind of Blue was certified five times platinum. So it was ranked number 12 on Is the Rolling right? Stones. Yes. Really. In 2003, it changes every year. Yeah. But, they should stop changing the list. Uh, they should make up their minds. But I like that that 2012. Uh, I'm amazed that it was, I'm sorry, that 2003, that it was number 12. That's pretty amazing. Being certified five times platinum, that means five million records sold. Uh-huh. That makes it the best-selling jazz album of all time. See, as Keith Richards said about jazz, there's no money in it. <laughs> there's no money in it. <laughs> He's my hero. Uh, so <coughs> behind the, the modal thing, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in 1953, pianist George Russell published his Lydian Chromatic Concept Tonal Organization, <coughs> which led to modal jazz. Bill Evans had studied this with Russell and had left Miles's band, but was brought back in for the project. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. And so, you know, here's how, uh, I mean, you kind of touched on like what modal jazz is. Yeah. Um, here's how Miles... Davis actually set, uh, explains it. Okay. Right? Yes. No chords gives you a lot more freedom and space to hear things. When you go this way, you can go on forever. You don't have to worry about changes, and you don't, and you can do more with the melody line. It becomes a challenge to see how melodically innovative you can be when you're based on chords. You know, you know, at the end of twenty, uh, thirty-two bars, that the chords have run out, and there's nothing to do but repeat what you've just done with variations. I think a movement in jazz is beginning away from the conventional string of chords, and there will be fewer chords, but infinite possibilities of what to do with them. I think about that a lot because, um, like, Nevermind, that Nirvana record, mm -hmm. he the, the way he writes his songs, he never, ever adds a third. He's always just playing two notes on the guitar. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, yeah. ding. So, out, so then you can't that. really tell, is this a major or minor? It's it. And that opens it up kind of to, it, it makes it the sonic possibilities that much bigger. And uh, also, 
I really love this band Fontaine's DC. Have you? Heard? I haven't heard of them. Man, they're so good. They're from Dublin. They came and played last two weeks ago or something. Yeah. I saw them at the Scoot Inn. Like back in back in Europe, they play massive festivals. They're what are they called? Fontaine's DC. So I went to see them, and uh, they do have chords and stuff. But there's always one guy just making noise, mm-hmm. some sort of noise. Right. But the, they, they know how to incorporate the noise so that it doesn't sound like noise. It just sounds like a part of the song. And um, then the singer does almost a kind of spoken word thing. There's some melody lines, but there's a lot of just him almost like spoken word. Yeah. So So it's along the same lines for me. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm a big lover of... of chords and melodies all this stuff but it's it is super limiting when, yes. you, when you think in terms of human expression yeah so I, I agree with that. so i like things that step outside that um a lot so from what i understand uh and what i've read is that miles gave each performer a set of scales and encompassed the parameters of their improv improvisational st- style and consequently consequently more creative freedom with the melodies wow uh, it was recorded in two sessions, and basically there was pretty much no rehearsal. I believe that. Yeah. And, um, you know, they had, I mean, the players, they didn't really know what they were going to record. Right. Here are the chords, you know, okay, now let's, let's, let's rock. Okay, so was it just like, here are the chords? Did they know how many bars the chord was going to go for? I mean... I, I don't know that much detail. I just know yeah. that they were given, like, a list of, of some stuff and just... Okay, let's go. So... Part of the reason I know these records is I took a jazz class when I was living in Berkeley. One of my f- best friends is this guy, Adam Levy. He's played with Tracy Chapman. He played with Nora mm-hmm. Jones. And when I met Adam, it was Nora. Before, I fucking love her. Yeah. She's so hot. It was before all that that I met Adam. And he's a great guitar player. And uh, he said, uh, I'm taking this jazz class as a... I think he was taking it as a horn player. Uh, He goes, but you ought to take it with me. And it's like introduction to jazz, and we're going to be playing as an ensemble, and we're going to be doing certain tunes, and you should come and do it. And I said, okay. So I started taking a class, and, you know, every time I'd solo, I'd solo like a blues pentatonic scale (laughs) over over everything. (laughs) You know, and the... The guy that was teaching the class got really irritated and kept going, "No pentatonic, <laughs> no pentatonic." He he goes, "Go listen, go listen to the records, listen to some records and see what they're doing." So then I started figuring out solos. Just I was like, "Let's see if I could play the horn solo on this or that." Right. So I w- I'd sit there all afternoon and go, "Ba da 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 da, boom 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 boom, we we do do." I'd learn the whole thing. Yeah. And I go like, whoa, you know, what is he playing? Where what, yeah, how's where, he doing this? Where am I? <laughs> uh yeah, so the legend is that the entire album was recorded in one pass. I believe it. I mean that's it's what? not true though. Only the flamenco sketches was done the first try. Okay. I mean, those jazz guys, that's what thats what it's about. It's about improv. It's about you being so good on your instrument that you can handle whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all about improvisation. So you're a ninja, 
<laughs> here we go and and you and you just do it and uh you know they might do two three takes that's it and moving on to the next song and those guys play at such a high level that they could do it so i'd be surprised if they you know had to do 58 takes or yeah. something <laughs> right okay well some reviews all music senior senior editor uh Stephen thomas Irwine stated Kind of Blue isn't merely an artistic highlight for Miles Davis. It's an album that towers above its peers, a record generally considered as the definitive jazz album, a universally acknowledged standard of excellence. Why does Kind of Blue uh, possess such a mystique? Perhaps because the music never flaunts its genius. It's the pinnacle of modal jazz. Tonality and solos build from the overall key, not the chord changes, giving the music a subtly shifting quality it may be a stretch to say that if you don't like kind of blue you don't like jazz but it's hard to imagine it as anything other than the cornerstone of jazz a jazz collection i would totally agree with that i, I love that review and I, I, would... I want that review <laughs> I, I i do all this research on these records and get and like find reviews and stuff and and uh i want a lot of these reviews that I, that well I, I mean you're talking about one of the greatest yeah artists of the 20th century i mean uh it's an amazing record. It's a great Sunday morning record. Mm -hmm. It's a great record to put on if you're cooking. It's also, if you want to get sexy with somebody, I can think of no better record. Okay, I'll challenge you on that. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you know in uh, Fast Times with Ridgemont High, when uh, Damona's telling what a rat that, uh, you know, yeah. put on this. Right. Well, I believe that the flip side of Tattoo You is the sexiest yeah, but you I don't think you've tried kind of blue yet. Okay. Fair and enough. Next time next time you find yourself in a romantic situation and it's just you and and whoever, then I think put on kind of blue and see see if you aren't amazed yeah. at, at the romantic qualities of record. Fair past. enough. Fair enough. I can try that um, when my wife gets back to town. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Charles Mingus. Mm -hmm. Mingus ah, um. Mm-hmm. Studio album released in 1959, just two months after Kind of Blue. Okay. Uh, inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2013, 54 years after its release. Wow. Um, he died on January 5th. The reason I like to say that is because it was my grandmother's birthday. Or it is my grandmother's birthday. It was. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure what tribe he was, but um, I got my Cher Cherokee blood from my, my grandma. Hmm. So, um, talk to me about this album. What, what do you love about it? Because you picked the, the first three like, like that. Well, it was another one that I discovered while I was living in Berkeley and taking a class because we had to learn how to play um, Jelly Roll, which is the last song, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, on the album. So it's, you know, it, it's got this... Uh, Dun 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 Again, I spent many a, many an afternoon trying to learn the horn solos right. just to see what are these guys doing, what are they playing over these changes, and but 
I bought the record because of that song and we had to learn it, but man, I put it on and was just like, this is bananas great. So I couldn't believe from the very beginning. <laughs> and he's, you can hear his voice. Ah, he's screaming along and all this stuff. So it's kind of got elements of blues in it. I feel like more than Miles Davis, you can really feel Charles Mingus' personality. I, I, I'm, I'm there with you on that. And it's loose, and it's... I, I kind of had a theme for all these records, is that they're not perfect records. Like, Miles Davis is the most refined one. The rest of them have nails sticking out all over the place. Tom Waits. Yeah, Tom Waits, <laughs> London Calling, and the Beatles, double record. They're not polished, per se. They're not... They're not right. They're super dis dissonance and loose and all the things I love. And Mingus just, I had never heard of Charles Mingus before. You know, this was like, I was 27 or something and I suddenly found out who he was and I was going, man, this guy, he embodies everything I love. Like he, he's a master musician, but he's also, <clears throat> I would have killed to see him live because he just, Seems like he's on fire. He's just everything feels so, uh, so alive and so happening and so like could fall apart. Maybe it's just killer. It's just killer songs. All those songs are very memorable. Every single one. The beautiful melodies and boogie stop shuffles. But so so I don't know. I, it's just one of my favorites. You put it on, and it's it's going to be a great day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that that's what I love. You know, I don't like harsh, hurried mornings. Yeah. You know, I would rather sit down and. I mean, I typically listen to Sun Radio, but I need to start listening to albums in the morning as I drink a coffee. You know? Yeah. Especially great albums. Uh, did you know that the song? How do you say it? Faba Fabus. I don't know how you say it. Okay, we'll call it Fables of Fabus. It is named after oral. E. Fabus, who was the governor of Arkansas. No, I didn't know uh, that. And he was infamous for his 1957 stand against integration in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh-huh. Um, and so because he did that, Columbia Records made him uh, take out the lyrics, and they that's why it's an instrumental. Oh, and then a year later, wow. it was recorded with lyrics uh, for the album Char Char Charles Mingus Presents Charles Mingus which was released on a more independent candid level and uh, due to contractual issues with Columbia, the song could not be released as Fables of Fabus. So the candid version was titled original Fabus Fables. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. And he's like a, he's like a mix. He's like a, a he's got German and China and American uh, Indian and African American. He's like a, a mutt, you know? Yeah. They're the best though. Just like any dog. Um, quiz question. What other legendary jazz musician did not release an album in 1959? Was it A. Miles Davis, B. John Coltrane, or C. Herbie Hanc Hancock? Oh, I'm going to go with John Coltrane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Herbie Her Hancock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we knew, it was my, knew it wasn't Miles. Um, but yeah, so, th th I mean, when I was doing looking at stuff on this especially this album i started to realize how many awesome jazz jazz musicians were like i had to go find somebody that didn't <laughs> was, wasn't even there wasn't, wasn't around well it's <clears throat> that was the um golden age <clears throat> of jazz you know 
it a had, golden year, if you ask me. Yeah, and it obviously had its, um, it had its time, just like rock and roll had its time. I feel like rock and roll is is like jazz now. It's 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 no more. There's still people that play it. Yeah, I'm someone who still plays it. <clears throat> but as far as being the main popular music in American culture, it's not. I mean, let's talk about this, okay? Because I'm my band, The Big Gun Show, is I write all the music, and so it's heavily, heavily influenced by Keith Richards, and it's 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 rock and roll. Uh, we play a lot at Jenny's Little Longhorn, so we have a whole different like honky tonk set too. We got a record, and I'm giving it to you right there. It's called Sweet. Honky Rock. Half of it, we're pressing on vinyl, just waiting for the vinyl to get here. Uh, but side H is honky tonk. Flip it over. Side R is rock and roll. Awesome. So, but I believe that there's not really any good rock and roll bands out there. I mean, I think the last really was maybe Oasis. <laughs> or, I'm glad you said that. Or or but I have I, I, I have Jet in my top five records because I believe that they took all of those influences and did something with it. Well, I would say that Oasis was the last great, massive rock and roll band through the door. They were the last one. They were the last rock stars to walk through the door. You, Yes, you had the White Stripes and the Strokes, but that I was... I don't a, think that's that, rock and roll, though. Well, it's also a much more modest level of success. Yes. It's, they're very successful, but compared to Oasis, massive, huge hits on the radio... Still Every, hear him today. Yeah, I still hear them today. Two giant personalities, you know. Um, they don't compare. So I feel like what's happened is as the music has be fallen out of favor with the general public, yeah. so too there are less people doing it. So too there's less great ones doing it because of the less people doing it, it's just it's just a numbers game. You're not gonna have when everyone's doing it, when it's a gold rush. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's doing there's it. There's right? a ton of, of yeah totally so um yeah so like i mean brothers right so there's two brothers there. there's two brothers and jet there's two brothers in the black crows yeah and they always clash the kinks then there you go the stones i like to consider mick and keith <laughs> brothers yeah. uh all Music Review stated uh, Charles Mingus debuted for Columbia. Mingus Ah Um is a stunning summation of the bassist's talent and probably the best reference point for beginners. While there's also a strong case for the Black Saint and the Center Lady as his best work overall, it lacks Ah Um's immediate accessibility and brilliantly sculpted individual tunes. Mingus's compositions and arrangements were always extremely focused, assimilatingly individual spontaneity into a a firm consistency mood that approaches and reaches ultra tight, ultra tight zenith on Mingus. Um, then he goes on to say, it simply isn't possible to single out one Mingus album as definitive, but Mingus um, comes closest. I would agree with that. Um, I have another Mingus album called Oh Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's quite good. It's got... Lord, don't let them drop that atomic bomb on me. <laughs> and it's got some other great songs, but it's, I agree with that guy about the immediate accessibility. You know, for someone who mostly listened to rock music uh, up until that point, to put on a jazz record and have it just grab you like that uh, was an amazing revelation. You know, I was so used to 
thinking of jazz as this music, you know, you need to brew like four or five espressos and right. really, and really, yeah. and maybe smoke a joint and really just let, you got to go in depth, man. You got to really pay attention. It's, it's complex. It's, but no, it, that music was as immediate to me as Little Richard, you know, when I first heard it. Wow. It was just like, wow, there it is. Wow. I don't listen to much jazz. I'm going to start. It's so it's a different head, you know. It's great to put on. It's great to get into that headspace, you know. Rock and roll sort of demands your attention, and it's kind of um, super linear in a way. And it's about the lyrics, and it's about just listening to music without lyrics is amazing. And when you think that so much music, up until a certain point in time, had no lyrics, you know, all the classical music there wasn't a lot of lyrics, right? So, so there's something that happens to your brain when there's lyrics. You you start paying attention to the singer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you start thinking of the song, and turn, here comes the chorus. Where's the chorus? I want my chorus. Yeah. Where, where is it? And and uh, <laughs> this song has no chorus. It sucks. <laughs> and you know you you you're paying way more attention in a way, whether you like it or not. And but jazz is uh, much more subliminal, and it just kind of gets in there. You can listen to it over and over and over. And you've also got these musicians that are just playing stuff. Mind-blowing shit. If you, As a guitar player, if you go and start learning horn parts and learning the different... And then going to like Thelonious Monk and right. picking apart his solos and going then Django Reinhardt and start listening to his solos, you start to go, God, there's so much more I could be doing. I'm just hitting these three notes over and over yeah. <laughs> in different variations. You know, there's all these other notes, and there's different ways of articulating this note and different ways of leaning into it or laying back. It's like changed everything for me about what should happen. When yeah. I first started, I just wanted to jump up and down and pay attention to me. Everyone pay attention to me. Look look at me. Look at me. I love what you said. Rock demands your attention it does i know that's a that's a perfect line all right one more uh review here i want to read to you pitchfork said this is 50 years after the the release of this album Mm -hmm. poor big bellied cigar loving temperamental insecure misogynistic charles mingus while routinely placed on the best of genre lists and talked about as one of the preeminent bassists and band leaders in jazz his best albums never clump comfortably with anyone else's or with any particular subset of casual jazz listeners they're too spirited for cocktail hour too rough and too moody for listeners who reveal in uh, craftsmanship and not radical enough for daredevils I guess uh, I do get the feeling like if I was at my sister's house and we were making dinner and I put on Kind of Blue, she'd be stoked. And yeah. if I put on Charles Mingus, probably song three, she'd be like, could we could listen to this. something else? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my sister's not very in tune with music very much. But uh, yeah, so thank you for turning me on to that one. That was That's one cool. of the best part about this podcast is that I get to go get turned on to new music and I just favored everything in my... My Spotify. Um, Okay, Tom Waits. So his ninth studio album, released in 85. um, NME ranked it number one among the albums of the year for 1985. Pitchfork ranked it eighth in the top uh, 80s albums. Um, Rolling Stone listed as number 21 on its list of best, 100 best albums of all of the 80s. He has now been picked in the history of this podcast three times. Okay. And, you know... I, Had you ever heard this record? No. 
and I, I will tell you this: I never really listened to Tom Waits. Okay, but I do. You know, I, I want you to explain to me why. Now, I, I have one reason why I think he's cool. Why you've never listened to him? <laughs> or, Only you know that. Uh, I know. But it's because of Keith Richards. Um, you know, he he's he's really particular about all the sounds that go into his album. Like, he was he carried around, like, a for this album especially, because it's all about New York. Yeah. Uh, he carried around, a, like, a recorder and was recording, like, like noises and stuff, you know. Uh, in an interview, he... Uh, in an interview, he said... Um, he spoke of the mistrust of the fashionable studio techniques. And he said, uh, if I want to sound, I usually feel better if I've chased it and killed it and skinned it and cooked it. Most, th- oh, I'm sorry, I should say it like this. It cooked it. Uh, <laughs> most things you get, most things you can get with a button nowadays. So if I was trying for a certain drum sound, my engineer would say, Oh, for Christ's sake, why are we wasting our time? Let's just hit this little cup with a stick here. Yeah. Uh, make it bigger in the mix. And he said, no, I'd rather go in the bathroom and hit the door with a piece of two by four. Very hard. <laughs> right. So, Really particular. Um, you ever heard the story about like Keith Richards and and Tom Waits? Like they were working on something, they were writing a song or yeah. something. <laughs> Scribe. Scribe. <laughs> yeah. I have heard that story. I love that story. Uh, so what up? Well, tell me, what? Why? Why do I want to look? Because like Joni Mitchell's been picked on this podcast. I don't get it yet, and I'm always asking. Explain to me why I need to love Tom Waits. Yeah. I mean, I don't, to me, it doesn't matter really because he, uh, that's one of the reasons I love him. It doesn't matter if anybody likes him. I, I'm not going to pound the table because he's, he is a strange and unique musician, you know? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, okay. First thing you should know about Tom Waits is that. He did several, several records with How uh, Bones Howe, who worked with Elvis Presley. Okay. I think the guy's name's Bones Howe. You have to double check my math. But um, and they did several albums, and they're real. Tom Waits had this persona of of kind of this drunken, besotted guy that 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 smoked a lot of cigarettes and talked like that and drank and you know he'd have songs like the piano has been drinking you know <laughs> i love that song right and and the carpet needs a haircut and you know he had this persona and it was cool but everything was drenched in strings and you know everything mm-hmm. was super duper kind of things were a little more two-dimensional he still wrote great songs but they weren't as strange and unique as these songs. Right. And then he met his wife, Kathleen, and then he got sober. And it's funny, because I think Rain Dog sounds like you just polished off a bottle of yeah, it does. whiskey or something. Totally. But he was stone cold sober when he made it. So um, he started, he got rid of Bones as his producer, and he started producing himself with his wife. His wife also is a co-writer on almost all these. Really, I didn't know. Yeah, that. so I think she gets less credit than she should probably get because who knows what she's writing, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he's just doing it to be nice, you know. Yeah, I, she's a co-writer on so many of his songs, if not all his songs, that there's that person that's come into the room, and all you can see a clear demarcation of before Kathleen, after Kathleen. Okay. So that's important, but most people don't think of it because the guy's got such a huge 
persona that everyone just goes, it's Waits, it's Tom Waits. <laughs> he's a genius. And, and, you know, he is, but um, he's unique. He's a unique American character, just, just a, a, almost like an American folk hero. He's, he's, he, he's so strange and idiosyncratic and so gifted because his music shouldn't, his music shouldn't be accessible. People, yeah. It's very abrasive sounding, and it's very like, uh, it's not pleasing to the ear initially. But it doesn't matter. His, his gift is so strong that that yeah, it still translates, and people still like it. And and it's yeah. got such a unique style. I, that's I, him, you know. I I want to get into Tom Waits though, because people that love Tom Waits, they freaking love. Well, him. listen to Rain Dogs a lot, and then there's two other records that I would call part of the. Triptych is Swordfish Trombones. Mm -hmm. That's the one right before this one. And uh, Heart Attack and Vine. Okay, those are the three of this pe period. Uh, but Rain Dogs has all the best. Rain Dogs has the lion's share of the great songs, strangest moments, the coolest, yeah. the coolest things. All of them kind of have a spoken word on each one. This mm -hmm. one has West Ninth and Hennepin. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and, you know, there's a little bit of <clears throat> Charles Mingus in there. There's that one. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. There's that one instrumental, yeah, yeah, yeah. song. It sounds very Mingus-like, uh, and and then he's got you know he's got Downtown Train, which Rod Stewart made into a massive mm -hmm. hit, right? And you can hear the great songwriting when you. you know, the Rod Stewart version is really schmaltzy, but it's a great song. Yeah, like Will Sexton told me one time, he goes. Uh, I'm shining like a new dime. He goes, <laughs> he goes, that's how you know it's weights. Even though, even though it's Rod Stewart, I'm shining like a new dime. It's, it's Tom Waits, man. It's, you know, that's a, such a Tom Waits lyric. Um, so this was the first time that he was able to work with Mark Rebeau. Oh, what a genius. God, yeah. that. and impressed. So he was super impressed by weights and, and his like an unusual studio methodology. Um, he said that Rain Dogs was it was his first major type label recording, and so he thought this is how everybody records, you know. <laughs> and so he he soon remembers, and I love this quote. This is what Yates Waits told him. He said he was he was he wasn't doing exactly. He was like, ah, just play it like a midget bar bar mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy Clark. Okay, so that was the name of the jazz teacher. His name was Clark. He actually got to play. On a Tom Waits record. Really? Mm-hmm. He said he showed up, and he came in a pickup truck, like an old classic Ford pickup truck, and in the back there were all these crazy instruments. Right. And they got in the studio, they started working on things, and he said everything he asked for, he asked for like that. In right. In the theatrical terms. He'd go like, Ralph, the drums sound a little too friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Could you play something more antisocial? <laughs> or they were playing a waltz, and he goes, "Boys, could you give it more of a limp?" <laughs> so you know, oh, that's great. That's what. Um, so here's another story about him, and uh, it's about Keith Richards as well. So yeah. I love these stories. Um, he said, "Wait," said there was something in there that I thought would that he would understand. This was like they were first starting to write the song together. Uh, or when he came in for this album, because uh -huh. he's on it. Like there's there's certain yeah songs he's on he's on uh, Blind Love. You can hear him singing. Yeah, you can, did you listen uh, to that track? 
uh, I was sitting in, and I was like, "That's Keith." And I, there's also some some guitar parts. I was like, "That sounds like fucking Keith." Yeah, and there's I went a, and there's a solo part on "Blind Love" where it's the solo section, and you can hear Richard go, "Baby." Yeah, it's so I mean, you, badass. Yeah. <laughs> he, I, I don't know what his his voice is not great, Keith, but he just it's got he, soul, man. He he's, knows how to hit the right note yeah, at the right it. time, and especially for harmonies, he's like he's amazing with that. Anyway, he's he said he goes on to say, you know, I picked out a couple songs that I thought he understand. He did. He got he's got a great voice and just a great spirit in the studio. He's very spontaneous. He moves around like some kind of animal. I was trying to explain Big Back Back Mariah, and I finally started to move over to move a certain way, and Keith was like, oh. Why didn't you say that to begin with? Now I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an animal instinct. <laughs> All right, great. you ready for next, another quiz question? Yes. The cover art of Rain Dogs. Uh-huh. Is that John, Tom Waits on the front? No. You're nailing him. You got it. It's unbelievable because it looks, it looks just so like much him. like him. <laughs> it really does. It was like it was taking it from in some bar, like some burlesque bar in like Amsterdam, I think. Really? I don't know. Anyway, it looks just like him. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, let's see here. Robert Christigo of the Village Voice stated that Waits worked out a unique and identifiable lounge lizard sound that suits his status as a, as the poet of America's non nine to fivers. Yeah, yeah. He just. Uh... There's so many great... I went and saw him. I got to see him play twice. The first time was in Oakland, and it was amazing because he, he came... He did the what I would consider quintessential Tom Waits in that he... You're, you're waiting for him to come out. Everyone's so excited. He hasn't toured in I don't know how many years. Place is sold out. It's a big, the, beautiful theater. And all of a sudden, you the band comes on, but there's no Waits, and you hear this noise. Uh, <laughs> you look behind you and coming down the aisle of the theater is waits with a megaphone rawr, 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 you know and he he did his show and it, he was so wonderful and he was playing and there was a point where he picture a stage and then picture this upright piano he put his hands almost like a like a t- televangelist in the air and this upright piano rises out of the floor <sighs> and he starts to play it but now it's blocking the view of the people that are right in the front row uh-huh. in the first couple rows now they can't see him because there's this upright piano and he goes did you buy those seats on the internet <laughs> this was like right when the internet was becoming in everybody's home and uh and then uh, another part of the show people were yelling out the songs they wanted to hear like play Play that, play this, play that. You know they're screaming him out, and he he looks up and goes, "I thought I told you to stay in the car." <laughs> I mean, he's got a million of them, you know. Uh, ABC's Double J said that uh, in its review of the record, uh, "Rain Dogs" is Tom Waits at his most devious. I don't love Rain Dogs because it's weird. I don't love it because it's accessible. I love it because it sits precariously in between. It takes a very special artist to be able to pull that off. I would agree. I would wholeheartedly agree. It's uh, very strange, but also very accessible, much like the Charles Mingus record. But the songwriting, being able to jockey full of bourbon, you know, that, golly, what a great song. Just just great songs, hang down your head, time, uh, beautiful and, and uh, 
also caustic, you know, like in yeah. the spoken word part where he's like, such a crumbling beauty. I mean, the, I love him as a songwriter, though, because, yeah. I mean, that's one thing I do appreciate. I mean, the, the way that he crafts, yeah, puts words together. Like you said earlier, you know, piano's been drinking, the, the, the carpet needs a haircut. I mean, that's fucking creative. You ever heard the song Alice by Tom Waits? Uh-uh. I need yeah. to listen to it. It's so good. He goes, uh, arithmetic, arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, something, something on the clock. How how did the razor find my throat? Yeah. How did the, you know. I mean, he, he makes everything like human. He You know, he personalizes it. Yeah, but it's very hard to write that way. I, it's super it disjointed, but also very immediate. It's very, you know. Pleasing. Okay. Um, Rolling Stone. Rain Dogs insists on nosing its way around the bar rooms and back alleys that Waits has so often visited before. Love that. And then there was another one that uh, said, uh, described the music as bony and menacingly beautiful. Berger also observed that um, it's quirky, near pop, the all pro instrumentation pushing Waits' not so melodic but surprisingly fe- flexible vocals out front were his own peculiar. Where his own peculiar freak flag, his big heart, and his romantic optis, uh, optimism gloriously fly. Yeah. So. Amen. Know, there you go. Okay. London Calling, The Clash. Um, this album, after you picking it, has become just the the tied with other albums. Everybody as the picks most, it as most picked. Uh, it's only been picked four times, but. Of all, all the albums in the world, four times it's Redheaded Stranger, Songs in the Key of Life, and your next album, The White Album. Wow, how interesting. I'll, I'll show you the spreadsheet here in a second. Okay, I'm kind how of a spreadsheet nerd. Um, many have considered this one the greatest double album of all time. Yeah, uh, that's a bit of a stretch. Well, but it is. A lot of people, a lot of people say it. You, you've chosen two, and you know. So here's my question to you now: What's the third greatest? I'm, I'm going to say you're going to say Exile. Yeah, I would. Let me think. Let me think for a second. I mean, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, those are. Maybe London Calling is the greatest, because if I had to pick between the three, Exile and Main Street's fantastic. I but, agree. But. It's not in my top five, though. Really? Let It Bleed is in my top five. Exile, I, I've got a whole story Exile, behind Exile and Main Street's not in your top five? No. Nope. The Stones? I'm only going to pick one Stones album. There's only so many I can pick. But there's also like Blonde on Blonde, Physical Graffiti, oh, Live at the Fillmore East, The right. Wall. I don't care for The Wall. I'm not a Me Pink either. Floyd guy. I don't care for it. I've tried to listen to it so many times. I've and tried I, too. Everyone talks, everyone raves about it. What an amazing album. And so many times. I think I've bought it like two or three times and then I, I forget that I own it. <laughs> and then 10 years later, I'd buy it again to be like, I've got to give this I, album I, I, a chance. I, everybody's talking about and it. And then I listen to it. I I'm just, just get like, it. what yeah. is the deal? Why? Why? So I get lost somewhere in there. I start listening. I start to get bored. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I might go do something else. Right. Uh, it's like sometimes going to a sports event, you know? I just get bored halfway through. I'm just like, come on. All right. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Um, have you ever listened to it? It's not in, it's not there anymore, but there was a podcast called stay free. No. Um, Chuck D, uh-huh. uh, was the guy who narrated it. Yeah. It was awesome. Okay. It was killer. I, I can't find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. 
But if you can ever find it, stay free. Listen to it. It's a six-episode podcast. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people say that The Clash were the greatest rock and roll band. I mean, excuse me, punk band ever. But I, I just, I, I, especially on this album, I see so much more than punk. Yeah, that's why. You know? I mean, that's why they... It's kind of a disservice to put them in, like, the punk ghetto. Like, oh, you know, the greatest punk band they were so much they were so much better than that they are one of the greatest rock bands and they they they've got something that's hard to describe you know they're not the best musicians no, they're not i don't there's not really a good guitar player in the clash there's not really a good singer in the clash uh i love the clash i right. love them I, it doesn't matter that they can't sing in the in the traditional sense you know mick jagger yeah. mick jagger can carry a fucking tune even though his voice might not be described as the greatest, he can fucking sing. Uh, the guys in the Clash, it's it's kind of, <laughs> it's hard to say whether you would say they can sing or not, but that's beside the point. Can they move people? Yeah. Yes. They're fucking fantastic. And and they just have so much style, and they're so original. You can't miss that it's them. And uh, they do have an amazing drummer. At the, you know, Topper Head yeah, was, yeah. I mean, I was think he... one, of, one of the greatest... Uh, rock drummers there is he he could really really play and he really made their music swing yeah and so I agree with that uh, there's a certain something if you've ever tried to play uh, Train in Vain live with anybody you mm -hmm. will find it really hard to get right it just doesn't sound right right the whole thing that's holding that song together is the harmonica there's a <laughs> there's a harmonica going wah, 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 right. like that and it's the glue that holds it together but it's also topper head and topper head and fucking drumming on that song is so damn good that it's like he's he's amazing yeah i mean that you if, if you got a good drummer you you're more likely gonna have a good band um in my band though i'm i'm typically I'm looking for a drummer that that can commit. Uh, I'd rather have a less talented drummer that knows knows their parts. Uh -huh. um, so, quiz question, kind okay. of in this in the same theme. Um, on the cover of London Calling, yeah, was it A. Paul Simonson, B. Joe Strummer, or C. Mick Jones? Oh, that's so easy. It's Paul Simonson. You're nailing them, dude. You're nailing all yeah. of them. I, love I it. almost got almost. the right. Okay, I have a back-to-back -back question here. Another right. quiz question. Ready? Yeah. What was the reason that Paul was demolishing his guitar? Was it A, he was fed up with Mick and Joe getting all the attention? Was it B, he was frustrated that bouncers would not let the audience stand up out of their seats? Or C, he always wanted a Gibson SG bass? It was B. Nailing it again. Nailing it. So Simonson explained in a 2011 interview with Fender that he smashed his bass out of frustration when he learned that the bouncers at the concert would not allow the audience members to get up and stand up out of their seats. I wasn't taking it out in the bass guitar because there wasn't anything wrong with it, is what he said. <laughs> and uh, I, I love the cover of this album. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, just a classic. I mean, you've uh -huh. got the whole, like, uh, Elvis Presley stuff on the right-hand right. side, and it's like it, it, it's just, like, so, like, calm, just taking everything and throwing it in a blender. And what's the back cover? Where's that shot? I don't know. Armadillo World Headquarters. Really? Absolutely. Really? Awesome. Yeah. With Joe Ely, huh? Well, I don't know. That was Joe Ely's not in the shop, but that picture right. was taken at the Armadillo World Headquarters. I used to hang out with Joe yeah. Ely a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's. Um, so, here's a story about this album that I love. So, uh, 
basically Joe and Mick had been like they were having like a songwriting they, they were having writer's block if you will uh, and they showed up at Vanilla Studios in a matter of months they had this new epic record but they needed a producer right um, and they said we want Guy Stevens oh I know the story well, go ahead, we, go you ahead. tell it you no, tell go it, ahead I think I know what you're gonna say okay so they, they like it was basically like Joe Storm was like we have to have him so and they didn't know where he was he was just disappeared uh-huh. And so he basically went out to all like the little pubs that he would be hanging out with. And he finally found him. And when he found him, he looked like way older because he'd been drinking so much uh-huh. and partying and stuff. And he was like, yeah, he's like, oh, have a drink. And so Joe sat down with him and then Lena Calling happened. Oh, that's not the story I was thinking of. It was the producer before on another record where he came to the show and they didn't know who he was. And they came into the backstage and they, someone hit him in the face. <laughs> I thought it was that story. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what else? What else do you love about this album? I love everything about the record. I heard London Calling, the song, when I was like, I don't know, I was probably 12 or 13, uh, and I was visiting my sister here in Austin. I grew up in Laredo, and I forget which station the radio was tuned to, but they played London Calling, and I was like, what was that? It was. It just sounded so cool and aggressive and strange yeah. and like I, I i i was like what is that and that, that's when i first started to get into the into the clash and they actually came to laredo they actually came to my hometown and played on their way to the us festival really yeah they had little charlie little charlie sexton and the <laughs> e- and and the eager beaver boys opened the show <laughs> and i was like look at that dude look at that dude he's so cool I was like, how old is that guy? He looks like he's 22 or 23. He was like 14. That's how <laughs> that's how confident Charlie looked. He, he he looked like he was 21 to me or something. He was younger than I was. I was 16 or 17. Charlie, man. And, uh, and Joe Ely was there as well. But I didn't know who any of the, these people were. I grew up in Laredo. I, was, right. I hadn't moved to Austin yet. And um, The Clash came out, and they weren't that good. Why do you think they weren't that good? They were in Laredo. No, I'm teasing. I was like, "Really? Is this what everyone? Is this what I'm so excited about? They weren't that good because Topperhead and wasn't there. Ah, they had fired him. Not the same band. No, 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 it's not. No, not at all. Not even close. They were good. They were okay. They weren't the Clash. Topperhead and fuck, man, that's the guy. Yeah. So musicians are important. Personnel is important. I agree. And he was the guy. And so. Yeah, it just wasn't the same. I was very disappointed. You gotta find that glue. That drummer is just a locomotive. So, anyways, uh, but I got really into them, anyways. I and then when I went to college, I you know they broke up, and I got more and more into them. The more I listened to them, just they had this magic thing. I like, I love people like Joe Strummer, who, man. You know, how many notes are in his... Like, does he have three, three <laughs> notes or two? Like, there's no... He can't really sing. It's, it's so fantastic the way he sings. It's amazing. I love the way he sings. Yeah. I love the way he articulates. And my favorite moment on London Calling is during the song 
the right profile when he goes, go out and get me my old movie stills. Go out and get me a new roll of film. La, 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 la. He does this weird thing with his voice. Like, yeah. it's just gibberish, but it's 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 so killer. Yeah. And the way he does the, I can't even do it. During London Calling, when he goes, ah, ah, ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that rockabilly shit. It's like rockabilly shit on speed. It's like turned way up, like, Whatever rockabilly, woo, uh, mm, uh, all yeah. the rockabilly crazy shit noises, they've amp they've taken it to the next level, and they put tons of reverb on it, and it just sounds yeah, totally reverb. It's just so killer. Um, a couple reviews here. Um, let's see which one I want to read. Uh, one guy, Gary Bushell, gave the record two out of five stars, claiming that Clash had retrogressed <laughs> to Rolling Stone style outlaw imagery. And tired old rock cliches. Who the fuck's this guy? Uh, I guess you know. I don't know. Another another guy uh, uh, called it the best double album since the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. Yeah, it's got the same magical feel to it. You've got London Calling starting off, which is like just a, an amazing song, and then right away it goes into Brand New Cadillac. Yeah, which is fucking nuts. I heard another story about this album uh, with Guy Stevens. Like he was like super animated, mm -hmm. and like to get the mood in the studio right, he would like throw chairs yeah. around and, and and just like just to get everybody in the right mindset. Right. And I actually got to see Joe Strummer. I got to meet Joe Strummer on a separate occasion, but I got to see Joe Strummer play in Prague. I went to I went on this weird little two-month road trip around Europe by myself. Nice. Right before I formed Fastball, I was like, I had no money. I had mm -hmm. just enough money to go to Europe, very irresponsibly. Took yeah, what I took the you. last bit of money I had and bought a plane ticket and went and stayed in youth hostels and just went all over the place for two months. So I was in Prague for a whole week, and there was this club I would go to, and it was always like, a dollar to get in, or maybe 50 right. cents to get in. When was this? Uh, <clears throat> this was 1994. Okay. Summer of 94. So I'd go there. Um, I'd go there. I had my nightly round okay. of where I'd go. There was this one place that had really good New Orleans-style jazz. Mm -hmm. And it was real, no cover, but very upscale. Right. And drinks were like almost three dollars there. Uh. Everywhere else, <laughs> drinks were fifty cents or a dollar. And the club I would, the rock club I would go to, was always like fifty cents to get in or a dollar to get in. And this, they were having some festival, and Robin Hitchcock was playing. Someone else was playing. They wanted five bucks, and I kind of, within a week, had adjusted to the local economy, and I was like five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you fuck you i normally pay 50 cents i'm not paying five dollars fuck you i'm going somewhere else so i went to this little bar and i'm sitting in this little bar and there's this amazing band playing they were like had a you know they were very very americana sort of but also gypsy eastern european they had a fiddle player acoustic guitar they had a maybe a a trumpet player, a saxophone player. They played this very cool, unique kind of music. I loved it. I was having a great time drinking beer. There were like three people in there. <clears throat> and the band takes a break, and I say, man, you guys are 
great. Where is everybody? They go, ah, they're all at that fucking festival. I'm like, yeah, yeah that fucking festival. They go, they <laughs> Five dollar festival. They, they go, yeah. They go, yeah, Joe Strummer's playing. I go, Joe Strummer's playing. And I go, like, I see you later. And I went running. I went running over there. I didn't know he was playing. I went running as fast as I could. You know, it was like about two miles away. And I get there in time to see Robin Hitchcock, and then it's going to be Strummer. Like, it had been going all day, and I just blew it off because I didn't know he was playing. Right. And, uh, Joe Strummer comes on, and he's backed by these three Finnish guys. I think they were from Finland. There was this punk band that was a trio. Yeah. And so they were his backing band. If you go on the internet, you can find it. I found the exact date, the club, everything. All right. All right? So they were backing him up. And they come out, and they fucking open with London Calling. And I saw The Clash. These guys were better than The Clash. The reason is... When I saw the Clash, Topper wasn't there, and they were at the end of their career, and they hated each other, and these Finnish guys loved Joe Strummer, yeah, and they were on fire because they were young guys and they were playing with their fucking hero, and they were—it was just like insane. Da 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 da. And he's like, London calling to the faraway town. It was fucking amazing. The whole club's going nuts. And then they go into brand new Cadillac. I'm like, this is a fucking dream country. And then the power goes out. Uh, the power goes out because we're in Czechoslovakia and it doesn't come back on. And he, so they go off the stage and there's about 40 minutes where they're trying to get the power finally comes back on. And he goes, let's just play it all over again. And they, so they start again. So I got to hear London Calling twice and brand new Cadillac twice. Nice. <clears throat> so that was a great, great, great night. And then um, many years later, Fastball played Summerfest in Milwaukee, and who was on this other stage? Joe, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Ah, I had an all-access pass. Mescaleros. I said, I'm going to go meet my hero. <laughs> and I did, and he was super nice to me, and it was, I have a picture. It was really rad. Uh, wow. That's a, I love those stories. Yeah. You know? All right, we got to talk about the White Album now. Okay. All right, so this is another Double, Double album that you've, cho- you've chosen. Uh, studio album released in 1968. Debuted number one on the UK it. charts. It did not. It debuted at like number 14 on the on the US charts. Um, it is the third most pick record, along with Redheaded Stranger, Str- Songs in the Key of Life. Strange. And London Calling. Strange. I, I, look at you go. You're nailing them. Um, so... Did you know that it had a working title of A Doll's House? Yes. I did know that. Although if you'd quizzed me without a multiple choice, I couldn't have told you. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is basically they, they wrote up pretty much all the music at during their transcendental meditation thing in yeah. India. Mm-hmm. Came back and then, you know, they wrote like 40 songs while they were there. I know and, all and this. they snuck drugs in. Yeah. They, I hesitated to pick this record because the Beatles, you know, are my favorite band. Are they still my favorite band? I don't know. Like, I, they've been my favorite band most of my life. And I feel like all things, you, you have to move on at some point. Okay. I've heard their music so many times. Um, I adore them. I love them. They're the whole reason I play music. But I get a little tired of, like, 
here's the revolver box set and here's i'm like would you stop just let it be would let it be be. (laughs) would you just leave let it be for real just leave it alone it's a beautiful legacy do you have to keep trying to squeeze money out of this it just drives me insane it was so long ago too you know can we move on yeah. Can we let some other people have, yeah, yeah, have, have some, some 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 of the? How about we talk about the cars or someone? You know, like you know what I mean. There are other artists that that until you would think, well, until these guys pass on, there's not going to be. Well, they've passed on some of them, yeah, and we're still just stuck here. So that's my rant. They are my favorite band. They've changed my life more than anybody else. Their music resonates with me more than anyone else. I'm just a little cynical with the like, like golly, here comes the revolver box set. Yeah. Next, no, it's gonna. You. Next, it's gonna be the Sergeant Pepper, you yeah. know, reboot. No mix, you know. We remixed it back in, you know, whenever 2008. <laughs> but now we got to remix <laughs> it again. And, and then we remastered. And it. And then remaster it again. Digitally oh, this. Mi- oh, I prefer this version. Oh, I prefer that <laughs> version. Jesus Christ, go listen to something else. Fuck. Well, I so believe that's why I hesitated to pick it. Well, why? It's your. I mean, I know that I'm going to have. So I believe you're either Beatles or Stones. That's just what I believe, and I believe that if you're if you're Beatles, you're either Paul or John. Hmm. I don't agree with any of what you just said. Well, <laughs> that's what I believe. Uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, you're, you're driving me to drink. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, I hesitated. Also, if you listen to my music. I do. You might notice that there's a lot of beetle type of... That is the one thing when I listen to your record that you have online. Uh, I guess it was recorded 10 years ago or something. Yeah. That was the, the, after the first song. I was like, dude, that's so Beatles. I love them. And I, I, as a musician, I'm always trying to escape Beatle Island. That's what I call it. Right. It's like I love them so much that it. I just start to do those things. Uh, so that's, that's all my uh, disclaimers. And now I can get on to the gushing, <laughs> the gushing of how great they are. One reason I picked this record is because it's a double album, so you get more Beatles than just one. The records are very short normally, so it's nice to have something that um, has this amount of tunes. Yeah. Number two, it's the sound of the Beatles starting to fall apart. They haven't fallen apart yet, but it's the first time where you're like, hey, what's going well, yeah, on? It's, a little different it's here. not really the four-headed monster anymore. It's right. starting, the individuals are starting to really assert themselves. So I like that. Um, there's some just out-and-out out stunning moments. I mean, happiness is a warm gun. is insane. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is insane. I've successfully played it live before. It's incredibly hard to pull off. It's super weird. It, it's got all these time changes. It's got all these strange things, and he just makes it seem effortless, you know. And I don't. I. It's just incredible. That's a. That's a super magic moment. The. And then you've got stuff that, the sleeper hits like, long, long, long. The George Harris. It's yeah. been a long, long. And you know you've got weird throwaway shit like a uh, honey that's john lennon by the way yeah he was super frustrated that they were doing 400 takes of this fucking song oh really okay and then and also i think they didn't have an he just came in and banged that on the piano that's him playing it you know great. i so i assume you've you've watched the uh the 
Get Back documentary of the Beatles. I did, and I, you know, I piss off all my friends when they're like, "Wasn't that amazing?" I was like, "That was so boring." I wish they had edited it a little bit, a little bit, more. you know, a little bit more. You don't need to see every single. Well, they edited it down a lot. They had a shit ton more footage. I like to say that. What is it? Seven, eight hours, six hours. It's like two and a half hours each. Yeah, so like seven and a half. So he found the seven and a half hours that they were actually getting along. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what I know because I've I used to always like say, man, I mean, how did they come up with all of these ideas? Like these kind of mm-hmm. weird, like you know, voices and stuff. But I saw it. I I, I kind of started to understand because John Lennon the whole time was just like just saying saying stuff, real random weird stuff. And I was like, this is so weird. And then I started thinking, oh, that's they just take that and put that there. That's part of how they do it. I mean, the way they do it is just like you or I would do it. That's the most revealing thing about that documentary. And then you realize, oh, they just work harder than you and I do. Because if you look at it, those guys, it seems like it takes forever for them to get their shit together to get those tunes. Yeah. But then if you look at the calendar, it really only took four or five days right. or seven days. It didn't take that long. It, it, they were in there every day. That's the difference. They were in there every day, all day. I don't know that many bands that I'm friends with that do that. They go, okay, I'm going to blow off everything and go, we're going in. When they're recording, people do that. But yeah. but in terms of songwriting and stuff, people usually don't do that. Yeah. They they went in and they just they just go and go and go and they'd play stuff over and over and over mm-hmm. and over and over and over. So then finally, a song like Get Back starts to really be cooking. It's like everyone's got their little parts. Yeah. And stuff, but the, they didn't just go. I think I'll go. Yeah. He didn't do that. Like that, you see all the takes where he's slowly discovering. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna do this now. I'm gonna do that now. You know. I hear you. So, they were very, um, very, very uh, hardworking individuals. I guess is what I would say. I feel that Paul was kind of the leader at that point. Yeah, he was, and he was probably. I heard a story. Now, you know, this was from someone who was there. It wasn't from the Beatles themselves, but I'm, who was I talking to? Oh, it was, it was the guy that recorded one of your favorite, uh, favorite bands, (laughs) your favorite band. It was the guy that recorded when the Stones went down and recorded Wild Horses and for Sticky Fingers. Yeah. And Honky Tonk Woman, they did it at what studio was that? It was in, um, it was near Muscle, Muscle Shoals. Shoals. It wasn't Muscle Shoals, was it? it I think it was. It? I was going to three songs. There. I was going to say Muscle Shoals, but wasn't it the other? St- yeah, it was Muscle Shoals. Okay, whatever. Doesn't matter. The guy that's there in Gimme Shelter, the guy that's sitting at the desk with Jagger when they're listening back to Wild Horses. That mm. guy. I met that guy. Nice. And I asked, and I really wanted to ask him about the Stones. <laughs> I was at breakfast at this weird thing uh, in Muscle Shoals. And uh, there were, it was this big thing, you know. Alan Parsons was there, all these people. Right. And um, we were at breakfast. I'm like, God, ask him, ask him, ask him. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know him. I'm here at breakfast. I, he probably gets asked this all the time. Luckily, Webb Wilder was sitting at the same table. Right. And he said, What was it like to work with the Stones? And he said, You know, man, we weren't, you know, it's funny. We weren't impressed with those guys before they showed up because. We had Otis Redding. We had all these people. Like, <laughs> they're just some band from England. He goes, I'll tell you something. Those guys were serious as a heart attack. 
maybe they partied and stuff when they were uh, out on the road or whatever. He goes, when they were in the studio, they were like so focused. It was crazy. Like just super duper. So he had a lot of nice things to say about him. But then he started talking about meeting George Harrison. Yeah. And he, this guy, had played with Elvis Presley. Okay. So he asked George Harrison, what was it really like to be in the Beatles? And George Harrison supposedly said, I'll tell you if you tell me what it was like to play, <laughs> what it was like to play with Elvis. And uh, so he told him what it was like to play with Elvis. And according to this guy, uh, George Harrison said, we were nothing more, no, nothing less than Paul's backing band. Yeah. Huh. Uh, that's the way he felt about it. And you can see how strong a personality McCartney is. Yeah. And, and it must be maddening to be in a band with someone who's right as frequently as he is. Yeah. Because what I loved about it was watching him tell people what to play. Yeah. And watching them bristle at him telling them what to play. And then you think to yourself, but you will end up playing that. <laughs> and it will sound fucking awesome. <laughs> like, like... You, like he's right. You're in the room with Mozart, and Mozart's right. You know yeah. he's right. He's he knows his shit. I don't know how he does it, but he does. He knows, and and most of the time he's right. Um, so McCartney was by that by Let It Be. Certainly he was that way. But I think John sort of faded. With John was all strung out on heroin at the time. But during the White Album, <laughs> everything's kind of up for grabs. People, George is starting to assert himself. Yeah, uh, and it's just, it's just a super cool kaleidoscope of tunes. It's got some of my favorite songs. I mean, uh, when I was a kid, I uh, loved to put on side two of the White Album, which starts with "Martha, My Dear." Okay, right before I went to sleep. Nice. Okay. And I never ever made it to the end of side two until one night I woke up and I heard the end of I Will. And I see it's such a massive record that I had never listened to everything all the way through yet. Yeah. It's like it's still early. I'd owned the record for a couple of days maybe. So I hadn't sat down and listened to the whole thing. And I heard the end of I Will and then I heard Julia start and I went, holy shit. And I'm in my room and the, the little amp on the Stereo is lighting up the room, so the room is lit up in this nice. awesome kind of light blue. Yeah. And John's voice is going, I thought I say. It's so beautiful, and the guitar. And I was just transfixed. I was like, God, this is so amazing. And, it, you know, it's got While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and it it really is a powerhouse. Eric Clapton played the solo on it, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And uh, Bungalow Bill and... <laughs> It's got. It's a great album. It is. There's no doubt, you know. And the and the Beatles. Are, I mean, they're. I'm gonna say they're the best studio band ever. Probably, probably the best studio rock band for sure. You know, they were just they were just magnificent. They really were great. I mean, the Rolling Stones are a lot more fun. Yeah. Like like the Rolling Stones work better in your everyday life. Yeah. You know what I mean? And let's they have definitely a, demand your attention. Let's have a party. You put on the Stones. It's gonna be a party, and and. Uh, if you if you're in a live band and you you're faced with like okay you can do a set of either the Beatles or Stones <laughs> fucking the Stones of course yeah it's just better music for that kind of thing I hear you it is all right so let's talk about you for now um, where can people find you online um 
the best place is website my website i'm the person that runs it so it's just like it's yeah. never updated it's just <laughs> sitting there <laughs> i don't i don't uh i don't because i'm also in fastball and fastball is a predominant thing mm -hmm. i don't really curate or take tend to my garden very well um at this point but you can go to um Follow me on Facebook. Go to my Facebook page, which is Miles Zuniga Loves You, at nice. Facebook.com, and also my Instagram. Those are the those are the things I'm going to update the most because it's the easiest for me right. to update. I hear you. Um, and then fastball is my major thing right now, but I'm always liking to play shows, solo shows, and go do other weird stuff on my yeah. own. I was doing a show every week during the pandemic, and I even kept doing it after the pandemic. Uh, but I just kind of stopped after a while. It was Tuesdays with Miles. I was doing it for a long time. I got really good at it. I was very enjoying it very much. And then once the world really got back to normal, I was kind of like, do I really want to sing into a box for like right. an hour? Like, it paid good too. I don't know why I don't do it. <laughs> the people that want to hear it. But there's something very strange about I was glad to be back out in the world and just doing regular things and not singing to a computer. Yeah. It's not really like it's it's different than playing live for sure. For sure. No in, doubt. In a way it's really good for you because you have to create whatever excitement there is in a room by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be a useful thing I mean, to I'm trying learn. to do a live concert online only. I mean, yeah. it's just like there's no there's no crowd interaction, there's no energy right. that's coming back at right. you. Right. There's no feedback or anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, um any shows you got coming yes. up here? Yes. There's a show in Marble Falls. I'm not sure the venue but it's how big is Marvel Falls? I don't not know. Not big. Not big. Uh, it's November twelfth with Fastball. That's going to be a really good gig. All right. And that's the one if you live in Texas. And, and then we're also playing Venice West, um, in California on December second. So. What's the makeup of the band right now? It's the same three dudes that have been there since the beginning. We've always had an auxiliary. In the beginning, it was just the three of us. And then we've always had an auxiliary guy of some sort since 1998. But then this last summer, our bass player that was playing with us couldn't. He got some new job and they wouldn't let him go. The tour was really long, two months. So we elected to just return to a three-piece format and awesome. use this Roland sampler for certain tunes. Okay. Not, not every song, but for certain tunes to augment yeah. the parts. And we found that shrinking the band back down to the three people that have been in, in it since day one, from the very first day right. afternoon we played together, was so powerful because we have so much shared journey. Yeah. And something happens with an auxiliary person in that they're not in the band per uh -huh. se. So there's a weird little energy that starts to get created where the, we're all riding together because we're not the Stones. It's not like yeah. we're taking the jet and don't worry, you know, we're yeah. going to... Like, you know, we got all these handlers. We're all in a van together, you know? So it's not like we're all together, but it's very kind of unequal in a way. There's yeah. these three guys that are the principals, and then there's you. And so I can imagine as a side guy, after a while, you start to feel a little weird. It's just yeah, out, kind of out of the circle. Well, you're just not, yeah, you're not one of the brothers. There's three brothers, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's just how it goes. But the three of us get along great, which is amazing because after all this time and there's a lot of water under the bridge but we're really dear friends and we really love each other so all of that 
comes through in the music you know when we when it's just the three of us right so we've had we had just probably one of the best tours we've ever had this summer with everclear where the crowds were nice super duper responsive i think they could feel the the, the thing yeah cool okay well this was a blast today Thank thanks you. for coming over here yes. man this was really fun I, thanks I, for I having me it. and that, you were very uh, informed and on point you made it uh, really fun <laughs> I told you everybody that leaves here is like that was so much fun alright well thanks man Thank you. I appreciate it alright so much fun I just love all of his stories uh, you can find Miles on the good old interweb at uh, MilesZuniga.com. That's Z-U-N-I-G-A.com. You can also find a lot of information at FastballTheBand.com. Uh, Instagram, MilesZuniga. And then Facebook, his handle is MilesZunigaLovesYou. Um, and if you got the gumption, head over to TheBigGunShow.com. Check out what my band is up to these days. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all with the same handle of the Big Gun Show Band. That's the, the beginning, band at the end. Um, our most consistent gig, we have a monthly residency at the Little Longhorn Saloon here in Austin, Texas, home of Chicken Shit Bingo. We play happy hour on the first Friday of every month. Bring Grandma. This will have a blast. Now close your eyes. You're in that afterlife bunker again with some weed, booze, and your top five favorite records. What five records do you have? Until next time. I think it's love.